sermon outline this morning is found on pages 9 through 11 of your bulletin. And as we come together, we ask the question, as the sermon title does, what difference does it make? What difference does what make? What difference does the resurrection make? What difference does Jesus coming back from the dead make? What practical difference does it make? We will explore that together in a few moments. But first, the word of God from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 18. We stand before, Lord, and you this morning and the empty tomb, and we marvel at your power, your faithfulness and persistence, your long-suffering with us, and the marvelous future that you have opened up for us, which none of us deserve. We are awed, indeed, by who you are and how great you are, and pray that in these moments now together we might see the power of Christ and feel the presence of his spirit, and know the comfort of his word. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This section in Acts 16 is one of the many instances in the New Testament where Paul is preaching, and Luke, the author of the book of Acts, summarizes what he says by saying that he preached the good news and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mention very often, that if, it, if at all, that he talked about the specific miracles of Jesus. It doesn't mention the, the moral and ethical standards which Jesus taught, as in the Sermon on the Mount. But time and time again, there is this reference to the resurrection and the centrality that it played in the early church's message. I'm afraid that today, for many of us, it's not so central. And, of course, that's partly my fault. I'm the preacher, and I set the tone of what we preach on along with the session. We don't talk enough about it. We have to do better at that. In Paul's day, the Greco-Roman world was swept by Christianity and by this message that Jesus was alive. That simple. He died under Pontius Pilate, as the Apostles' Creed says, and he rose again the third day. He's alive. And for some reason, that skeptical generation was swept by this truth. It was changed. The culture was changed. The leadership was changed. The standards of the day gradually over time were changed. And I would suggest to you it is for at least two reasons that it still continues to be of interest for us today. First of all, it's credible. And second of all, it answers the deepest needs of our hearts. That's what difference it makes. Let's look first of all at the credibility test. 
Paul doesn't say, although not in this passage, but as we look at the wider context of his preaching, he doesn't say, Jesus rose from the dead and you just have to believe it. You just need to have faith in him. You just need to go along with it. Sometimes that's the message that people hear. But there's much more to it than that. Paul says before Festus and Agrippa in Acts 26, these things were not done in a corner. They were done openly. People are alive today in Paul's day. They are alive who saw him, who remembered him, and who could testify to his presence. So he speaks to them about the proofs of the resurrection. But we have to acknowledge that he does so in the context of the wider context of vulnerability. We have heard this morning read from 1 Corinthians 15 that everything hangs on this. Some would say, well, take the resurrection away. It doesn't make that much difference because Jesus' ethical and moral teachings are still true. It's still right to tell the truth. It's still wrong to murder. It's still right to do what the Bible says. It's still wrong to ignore it. And certainly he lived an inspiring life, doing many things, helping people everywhere he went, and always in a gentle and kindly way. But that's not the argument that the Bible makes. Perhaps we could be satisfied and say, well, either way, I want to follow Christ. But the the teachings of Paul in the New Testament don't give us that option. It's all or nothing. I mean, that's what we have to conclude from what was read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. If these, these things are not true, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are of all people most miserable, and everything else that we teach can't be relied upon. This is a lot of weight to place on one thing. And that's why I say the argument that the Bible makes for the resurrection is one of great vulnerability. Who of us, this many years later, has seen the empty tomb? All of the eyewitnesses are dead. The followers of Christ are flawed. The power of the Lord is invisible in most instances. Really what we're left with in the 21st century is words. Words in a book. Because the stone we cannot see, the eyewitnesses are all dead. The church itself is hardly perfect then or now. All we have left are words. Now we step back a moment and we say, this is how God set it up. He could have done it another way. He might have sent us a periodic visitation from angels or from Jesus himself, maybe, say, every ten years at a certain time and place. He might have set it up so that there was other eyewitnesses who remained alive, who we're not touched by death, even after 21 centuries, and we're able to say to us, no, I saw him. Like Thomas, I put my fingers in his hand and I touched his side. He was real. 
What we have, we must admit, is vulnerability to the skepticism of this world. And I must say and acknowledge to you that more than once I've wished that the Lord might have done more for us to help us convince and prove his existence and his power. But he has chosen to do it in a way that makes the church vulnerable. Do you feel that vulnerability when you try to talk about these things with others? It's such a central thing. But how do you know that it's true? And what proof can you offer to somebody who's skeptical and doesn't believe? I would have thought that he would have made a more airtight case. When you make your estate, you look into the future for your children and grandchildren and your plans and gifts, you want to be sure that your plans are well thought out and are, are going to help in a solid and predictable and real way your future generations. But the Lord facing our inheritance and our uh, will, if you will, from him, he has left it open to question and has made the church vulnerable. Now, as in all other things that he does, this is very wise. And we see the wisdom of it in a moment, but initially we have to feel the weight of the fact that he has given us a message that we cannot prove. He has told us to go tell the world something that's incredible, literally. These things don't happen. And now you're claiming that it does. And you're not just claiming that, it's, you know, that he walked on water. But the scriptures don't say that everything hangs on the fact whether or not he fed the 5,000 or walked on water or raised the dead. What, what the scriptures hang on is this one central simple fact. Jesus came back from dead into life. And so the world responds. How do you know that Christianity is true? How do you know when he died it was not just as a wonderful example to point us to lofty living? How do you know that Christianity is just fine as long as you can get some good out of it? Other religions don't teach this. Their founders are teachers and prophets. Our founder is God. They try to get to God by living a good life. We do not find God by our own efforts. They offer ethical and moral teachers, teachings. We offer the presence of God with us. But it is a God we cannot see. And he has left his church exposed to skepticism as Paul found it in, that first few, in those first days and ever since as preachers and proclaimers and missionaries have gone from place to place and culture to culture. We have some credible proofs that we can give regarding the eyewitnesses, but they're dead. Who moved the stone? But which of us saw it? The, the apostles' lives were transformed. And they went out and all of them, or nearly all of them anyway, suffered martyrdom and death for the sake of the gospel. So they believed it. But the church has been weak and failing ever since the disciples fled from the cross. And although their lives were transformed, the church has struggled for 2,000 years from time to time with internal issues, heresies, schism, and troubles. He might have slammed the door like he closed the door of the ark 
and ended with all finality any question about the resurrection. But he didn't. He left it, in that sense, open. And he left his church, in that sense, vulnerable. Do you feel it? Do you recognize what I'm saying? It was his plan to do so. It would be interesting to see what he says when we get to heaven as to why. But he left us hanging out there, vulnerable to the skepticism and mocking and scorn of generations of people. And he said, in effect, he said, I'm giving you this, but that's all I'm giving you. Deal with it. It's enough, as you'll see. So this resurrection is, first of all, characterized by the vulnerability of it. Everything hangs on it. You know, if everything hung on something in your life, you would sure protect it, and you would, you would fortify it, and you would make it strong. The testimony of the resurrection is strong, but it's very also vulnerable to skepticism, mocking, and scorn. And none of us can change that. That seems to be his design, his plan. We live in a world carrying a cross and a message that the world hates, opposes, snorts and mocks and scorns at. And we can't do a whole lot about it except cling to the truth and not give it up. But secondly, we do have confidence. Paul challenges Agrippa later on when he speaks to him to to produce the body. If, If this isn't true, then show me the body. And he begins to build a case. He says, ask the witnesses that are still alive. Here they are. I can give you some names. You can ask them if this is true. And looking back over several recent issues regarding religion online, I noticed in April of 1995, even Time magazine acknowledged that as vulnerable as the Christian arguments are to skepticism and rejection, first of all, the Gospels were written early enough to be contemporaneous with their claims. So we don't have anything that rules out what the Bible says. We have early enough testimony in the written record, textual proof of the testimony of the Bible early enough that we can't just say this was made up later. If it's wrong, it was believed from the beginning. And the textual evidence simply just has grown over the centuries to show that these things were believed and taught from the earliest days. Secondly, the Time magazine said, if it is a lie, and many people do think so, it is poorly defended. Women are the first eyewitnesses. You wouldn't want to do that if you were putting a lie together. In those days in culture, you would bring perhaps uh, lawyers or religious leaders or some kind of political figure. And also, the apostles die for a hoax. If this is some grand scheme, some pyramid plan to spread the word into the world, and then these men have bet their lives on it consistently and in different locations, not just huddled together in the Alamo, you know, with Santa Ana coming against them, but one by one by one, all across the Mediterranean basin and into the Far East, where tradition tells us even to India, the disciples, the apostles went and were martyred for the faith. 
Which brings us to the fact that although there is scant evidence for us today, there is some. There is enough. There isn't anything in the record that has been discovered that says, nope, that's wrong. Completely wrong. If you have skepticism, it's an inward skepticism. It's someone that, something that comes from the inside. Which gets to the next point, the application here. The real problem with the resurrection and the real reason for the skepticism, in my view, is that if it is true, then you lose control of your life. If this is true, if this is the cardinal doctrine of fact, if this is the greatest event in history, as the Bible says it is, a fulfillment of the ages upon which everything was leading and from which everything has been proceeding, if that's true, then that's, that's arresting, that's startling, that's astonishing, and you lose control of your life. I have to reckon and grapple with this if this is true. I mean, I can go around the rest of the year without Easter, without even hearing anything about this, and I can go my own way. But when these Christians come at Easter and they say that this is all they've got, that the whole thing, that they don't want anything to do with the morality or the miracles except for the resurrection of Christ, and that's what Paul is saying here in, in, as he preaches. If this is all they've got, it might be true. And if it is true, I'm going to have to stop and consider what else the Bible teaches. Because it is the center from which everything else proceeds. And it means that I'm not going to be able to live the way I want to. There's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a day of judgment. There's going to be a resurrection or a non-resurrection. If, you lose, if, if it is true, you lose control of your life and the way you want to live. And this touches money sexuality, and all kinds of danger, da- daily choices. So, we're vulnerable. Well, what difference does it make to us? What difference does it make to a prospective believer? First of all, there are tests, as I said we need this to be true because of our hearts. We need the resurrection to be true because it meets our heart's deepest desires. If you are living without the resurrection, which means you are living without Christ, then you are living alone. You may have friends, you may have loved ones, but you are cosmically alone. And every heart longs for fellowship and companionship. Secondly, the resurrection is not true because it works, which it does, but it works because it's true. You can't try the resurrection. You can accept it or reject it. And if you accept it, you begin to see these other things flowing from it. Things that didn't make sense before begin to, and the pieces fall together. But if you believe the resurrection because you think you need it, it won't fill your need. It's a backward sort of upside-down kingdom kind of thing. But if you believe the resurrection because it is true, it will fill your, fill your need. That's what the Bible teaches. That's why it's so central. It is something that we need. It's not just an abstract fact. 
that doesn't need to be interacted with. I mean, David was the king of Israel. That doesn't require a life-changing response. That's a fact. Jesus rose from the dead. That's a life-changing, that requires a life-changing response. That's a historical fact that intrudes in our lives. The central question is, what do I believe about death? If you believe that death is the end, then there are two options, and they're represented in this passage, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Two schools of philosophy in ancient Greek that are mentioned in this passage. The Epicureans believed, uh, let's have fun. Pleasure for pleasure's sake. You want to go around once in life? Let's grab all the gusto we can. Let's have fun. Let's go for it now. Who cares whether there's a life to come? Probably there isn't. Let's not worry about that. Let's have fun today. You know people who teach that today. They may not go to Epicurean societies, but they've picked up, up enough philosophy from modern culture in our world to know that that's what they want. Then there are the Stoics, the Stoics who just say no, who call people to be strong and courageous and to deny themselves the pleasures of life for the greater good of character and stature, and nobility, and rectitude. The problem is both of these lead to idolatry and emptiness. Nothing. They don't go anywhere. They deny that there's a life after death, and they live this life as if there is no consequence. The key thing about the resurrection is that it is a few, it's, a, it's a past event with a future fulfillment that drags us along right now. That is to have in a present effect. It's a past event, but it's not locked in the past like most events. It has a present application because it ties us to the future. It's central. And here are at least five reasons why. What difference does it make, I ask, in the title of the sermon? If you believe in the resurrection, it satisfies your desire for immortality and significance. Philosophers and students of human nature for centuries have noticed that from generation to generation, people's interest in the afterlife doesn't diminish. It's a constant subject of books and conversation and movies and speculation philosophy. What's going to happen to me? Is this it? Are the Epicureans right? Are the Stoics correct? That when you die, you rot, and that's it. Many, many people think so, but the resurrection says no. When you die, there is, that's not the end. There is an ongoing pattern here. Jesus died. But he didn't stay dead. And he didn't rot. He moved forward into all eternity in the presence of his Father and of his followers. And we too will live. Because as Paul says, we are in Christ. As we trust in him, there is some positional status that we have in him that changes our eternal destiny and connects us to something immortal, eternal, glorious. The resurrection 
It's the only doctrine that does that. Secondly, it satisfies our need for acceptance. We have a need for deep consolation, to be loved. The testimony of the resurrection is that he loves you. He's just not moving through history accomplishing the divine enterprises that he has sovereignly ordained. He has stopped and he has interested in you. So the resurrection is not just for other people. It's for you. And it connotes an acceptance and consolation that is really remarkable. God is saying, I'm not finished with you in these short years upon the earth. I haven't fixed my love upon you, and that love will continue to all eternity. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone away, the new has come, and you will be transformed now and all the rest of the way. So it satisfies our desire for immortality to not just have this be the end, and it satisfies our need for acceptance. It further gives us incentive in this world to fight poverty and disease and evil because this world has become a platform for the world to come. And although there's much about the resurrection that is of the life to come, it is also the resurrection of the body and not just the soul. The body will be restored. A new heavens and new earth will be created. And one day... In a glorified body, we shall dwell in the presence of God, not just as spirits. For a time, our soul is separated from our body, yes, until he comes back. But when he comes back, and when he judges the earth, then our body and soul will be reunited in a glorified way. So what happens here counts. What happens here is important. The material world is God's creation. And as God's creation, it has value. And other human beings have dignity. We are not their judge. And so we we care for them. We preach to them. We pray for them. We love them in any way we can. The resurrection tells us these things are important. Fourthly, it means that ahead of me stretches a life abundant. Permanent, personal love somewhat mentioned in verse 2, but now fortified in verse, in, in, excuse me, in number 2, now in number 4. Don't be fooled. The trajectory of the human condition, if you live to a great age, is toward weakness, illness, and death. And that's a testimony to the great impact of sin in our first father, Adam, as we read this morning As in Adam all die, so in Christ we shall all be made alive. So in in Adam we die. And the trajectory of our strength, generally speaking, if we live to a great age, is one of advancing weakness and incapacity. But that's not the final story. The Bible says through the resurrection that there is a rejuvenation and and an abundance and a prosperity and a, a future that is nothing less than glorious. You haven't seen any days on this earth to compare with what you're about to see as a result of the resurrection. That's what the Bible says. 
Because the resurrection is true, a new and living way has been opened up for us that we may walk in, and it is glorious, rich, prosperous, abundant, and all the things that we lack here. Love unquestioned. Weather that's unchallenged. Prosperity and food and delight beyond measure. And no end to it. Everything we know in this world, even the best of it, is only slight and momentary. But the resurrection contends that a new life has opened up for us. Jesus rose from the dead. He met with his disciples for 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven. And that's the pathway that we walk in. One day we shall join him too. And I had to stop at five, but at least a fifth one too. The resurrection, if you believe in it, makes everything else a little less important. And boy, do we need perspective. Boy, do we need context. Because we are always jumping to conclusions. We are always straining at a gnat to swallow a camel. We are always stretching and distorting our lives by something that we simply must have with our disordered loves. But the resurrection says, I got it. He's got it. A hundred years from now, you've heard this before, a hundred years from now, nobody will care, right? Well, think about how much they'll care in a thousand years or ten thousand years. It gives you perspective. This isn't going to matter. I've got a home in in glory land that outshines the sun. I'm going to be there forever. Yeah, my heart aches. Yeah, that's a loss. That's a hurt. I don't like it. it. It doesn't feel good. But in the context of what I'm facing and what I'm inheriting, oh my, it's a little thing. It's just a gentle elbow in a crowded room. Perspective. So to conclude, unbelievers here this morning, I'm calling you to doubt your doubts about the resurrection. Maybe you're wrong about that. Maybe you're wrong not to think about it very often. Be skeptical of your skepticism. Did you ever change your mind in life? Maybe you could change your mind about this. You have gambled everything on it not being true. Take another look at the evidence. I grant you from the beginning, as I did in the beginning of the sermon, that the, the evidence is not airtight, watertight, or perfect. He has left the church vulnerable to skepticism, scorn, and mocking, and we have experienced it. However, there isn't one single fact about the resurrection that has been disproved in any objective way. The only reaction to it that is negative has been one of unbelief for believers, for you and me. If the resurrection is true, then we've lost control. Somebody's pushing us through life. Somebody is ordering our life. We can't do everything you want to do because he's the sovereign Lord. You have to give all of yourself to him, but if you do, you will be able to face anything and everything in this life and in all eternity. Now, this might be true on the basis of any number of things. He might have said, 
Your life can be changed if you believe he walked on water or that he fed the 5,000 or that he raised the dead. You might, your life can be changed if you believe that the Ten Commandments are true. But he didn't say that. He said, and Paul repeated it over and over again, it's the resurrection that makes it so. And it's the resurrection that guarantees that it's true. Because he says from the cross, it is finished. His work is done. What next? The resurrection guarantees that he has the power, he has the hammer, he has the position to make these things truly right. So doubt your doubts and be skeptical of your skepticism and listen to the testimony of the Bible. A testimony that has not been overturned successfully in over 2,000 years. A testimony that even Time magazine says is persuasive, early, causes one to think, might be true. And so we come to Easter. What difference does it make? All the difference in the world. Everything rests upon it. Let us pray. Lord, we want to believe we weren't there. We didn't see you. We didn't touch you. We didn't hear your voice. We didn't eat with you by the seashore. But You've told us that you were there in your word and you've reminded us by your spirit since then that you are at work in this world, although invisibly. And so change our hearts, we pray. For those who have come this Easter doubting, help them to doubt those doubts and re-examine the truth and the testimony of the scriptures. For Christians who've come, who don't want to give up control of their lives, help us to see that there's no fighting this. A God who can come back from the dead and who can raise others from the dead is not one to be trifled with, is not one to be doubted. And we can surrender control to such a one who who can do this. And so we thank you for the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And may you open our hearts to believe it and thereby make us new. Through Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen.